Today's episode of the Hot 4 podcast is proudly sponsored by Bespoke Brewing Solutions. Bespoke Brewing Solutions designs and manufactures equipment that allows breweries to produce high-quality crap beverages with increased cost-effectiveness and faster turnaround times. The BBS team has eight years of solid teamwork together and more than 10 years' worth of experience in manufacturing brewing equipment. BBS now has representatives around the world in America, Australia, New Zealand and, of course, China. Having a team in China that speaks the local language allows BBS to oversee all aspects of their clients' projects, from initial layout designs all the way through to equipment testing before shipping. BBS has equipment represented in 16 countries, which means they've sourced equipment and designed brew house configurations for every type of brewery you can imagine in every situation. BBS also offers consulting services from brewery commissioning, recipe formulation and equipment training on brew day to the packaging of your finished product. If you've never started a brewery before, they're here to help. And if you're an experienced brewer, they speak your language. Visit bespokebrewingsolutions.com. That's bespokebrewingsolutions.com to get in touch with one of the team to discuss your project ideas and to show you the bespoke way. I'm Nick Law. And you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hot Forward is a show entirely dedicated to the craft beer industry, featuring interviews, discussions and stories from the whole supply chain from grain to glass. So grab yourself a beer and get ready to hop forward in the brewing and beer business. Hello friends and welcome to a rather special episode of the Hot 4 podcast because this week I'm visiting Tint Meadow, the only Trappist brewery in the UK. Situated in the idyllic grounds of Mount St Bernard Abbey here in Leicestershire, this place just oozes serenity and a sense of something divine. This is quite a long episode today. Myself and brewery manager Peter Grady take a tour of the brew house and the bottling line before sitting down with Father Matthias, a brother here at the monastery and a brewer himself to chat about Tint Meadow and their beer. As many of you will be aware with Emmanuel's and my own brewing journey, faith, the monastic and the mystics is something that have fascinated me for over 20 years now and it's very much something I live my life by. While the discussion with Father Matthias in this episode certainly covers the brewing activity itself, It was a golden opportunity for me to ask a bunch of questions about his spirituality and how it connects with making beer. So be aware, some of the content of this episode might be slightly different than you're used to. As I always say with Emmanuel's, I'm not trying to force religion down people's throat, just beer. And the same applies here. The discussion with Father Mateus starts somewhere around the hour mark into the recording. Yes, you heard me, 60 minutes in. But there's plenty of great content from the discussion I've just had with Peter Grady before then. So before we go and meet Peter himself and chat to Father Mateus, here's a word from our sponsor this week and a little bit more about the Hot Four podcast. This show is only made possible by our supplier sponsors who support this podcast on a regular basis and offer support and insights to all our listeners within the craft beer industry, whatever your need. Today's episode of the Hot 4 podcast is proudly sponsored by Bespoke Brew Solutions. 
Bespoke Brewing Solutions designs and manufactures equipment that allows breweries to produce high-quality craft beverages with increased cost-effectiveness and faster turnaround time. BBS also offers consulting services from brewery commissioning, recipe formulation and equipment training on brew day to the packaging of your finished product. If you've never started a brewery before, they're here to help. And if you're an experienced brewer, they speak your language. Visit BespokeBrewingSolutions.com, that's BespokeBrewingSolutions.com to get in touch with one of the team to discuss your project ideas and to show you the bespoke way. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. You can find out more about Hop Forward and the work we do within the industry at our website, hopforward.beer, or follow us on social media at hopforwardbeers. And if you really wanted to go the extra mile, you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify with what you think about this podcast. For now, let's crack open this week's discussion. Right, so I'm outside the brewery itself with Peter Grady, who's the brewery manager. Hello. Uh, morning. How are you? Yes, not too bad. It's not too bad a morning for it. So, do you, I mean, do you want to describe just for our listeners where we are? Yep, so we are in rural northwest Leicestershire here, and Mount St. Bernard Abbey has been here since 1835. Uh, the monks, rather, have been here since 1835. Some of the buildings, obviously, have, have come later. Um, as you come down into the Abbey proper, there's a large driveway and a uh, public car park, and we get many visitors here, for um, obviously for the church itself, for our shop, um, and then for the numerous you know, great walks around here, people come and use it and they're free to do that. And that's uh, definitely part of our sort of mission here. Um, so now we're standing at the far end of the car park in the farmyard. And uh, until 2012, this was run by the brothers themselves. And they ran that uh, dairy farm um, since they, they started here almost 200 years prior. And it was only um, around that time, 2012, they decided that they could no longer continue um, the farm as a viable uh, economical proposition. Um, So they came to the tough decision. I think it took two years actually to wind down the farm. Uh, But they came to that decision in 2012 to uh, close the farm. Um, It was actually loss making towards the end. uh, And it went the way of so many, obviously, dairy farms Mm -hmm. around this area. I think there was at one point there was 13 dairy farms in this immediate area. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I I'm, I'm think there's three maybe now, and it's just been an amalgamation. And even across the road, we're still friendly with some of the farmers, and, uh, and they do um, beef farming now rather than dairy, uh, and they've got patches of land all over. So what we do here is we still own the land. It's the same land that was gifted, same 200 acres that was gifted um, by the Delisle family those 200 years ago, and we rent that to tenant farmers. Uh, it's a family from over near Moulton Mowbray, and they have, I think they have around 1,500 sheep on these 200 acres. Right. So they come and go as they please. That's part of their agreement. And as we look down now, you can see uh, any number of disused and moderately used farm buildings. The only thing we do do out here is we have, uh, we've converted one of the old um, barns into storage. That's the one with the green door you can see there. And right. oh, here's yeah. Brother Martin. <laughs> and... Um, we also do have some chickens. Uh, Brother Martin, who runs the, our shop and the pottery, he just cycled past. Um, those are his uh, chickens, they're free range. Um, Brother David also has some chickens further down. So there is still some kind of link to the farming, but it's very small hold. 
these days it, it's not done on large scale. Yep. So yeah, like I say, we only, the only building we actually use it, uh, we use one of the old barns, convert that for storage. Luckily, we did that just prior to the effects of COVID. Uh, so that meant that we were able to, with all the supply problems, buy more. Yep. Um, and that's really helped. Um, so instead of taking, uh, you know, just in time uh, for your packaging, your bottles, things like that, now we can take a lorry load and just stock it in there, and that's that's been brilliant. It's helped to combat a little bit <laughs> of the price uh, right. increases. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just had the auditors in last week, and uh, that was the main things I, uh, we discussed. <laughs> Um, I think it's on every brewer's mind as well, everyone in the country's mind at the moment, obviously. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, there's down at the far end, there's the Apri, where Father Matthias, uh, who makes little honey, and we sell some honey in the shop. But other than that, these are mainly just disused farm buildings now. So the decision was taken then to find a new source of revenue. Eventually, there were discussions of different things they might do. One of the things I, I remember sticks clearly in my mind was ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> But it was decided um, to look into beer production. Uh, a number of the brothers went to um, Belgium and the Netherlands. Obviously, the history of Trappist Brewing over there, met with the communities there. I'm sure they'll be able to tell you more about that later. And they um, then decided that that would be a good idea. Um, so they came back here and, and started. And, it, and it, it, from that sort of 2014, it, it took until, it wasn't until 2018, that we actually started brewing beer. Mm. Um, so it was a long process of discernment. If I take it down quickly, yeah, let's you, go can, for it. you can see um, what was uh, the farm manager's office, which we, we converted into the uh, uh, the test brewery, shall we call it? Yep. Um, before the fancy equipment was there. And you just have a look through the window and you can see. Cool. We've got a dovecote here, but the doves don't use it. Yes, I did. I did spot that earlier. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, that was another idea at one point. I think to breed right. like <laughs> doves, but well, which came to fruition. Well, right, okay. Oh, this looks like there's something in a pressure barrel in there. Um, yeah, there probably is. To be honest, is that like a test brew or something? Yeah, I would say so. And if you look down at these bottles, these are all test brews as well. Right. Wow. These random bottles here. Yeah, yeah. They're all marked. Occasionally, um, Father Mateus or someone will pull one out. Right. And we'll, we'll, <laughs> for a tasting. Um, but yeah, we we just had a small grain father. Um, I think the fridges might even still be full of beer, actually. Um, but this is, and you do see this uh, partly in our documentary as well, mm. outside the city. Um, there was, a, uh, I'm sure, there is a scene uh, inside here where you can see them testing different batches. There was a number of different batches made, as you can see from the number of bottles. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we tried different things like um, more traditional Trappist beers using Belgian yeast. You know, your candy sugar things like yep. that. But it was decided that um, ultimately it would be uh, rather than trying to do what might be a poor imitation of these classic, mm. fantastic beers on the continent, it would be better to make a unique or distinctly English yep. beer, but with a Trappist sensibility, with a Trappist style. So it's, it's a Trappist beer, but it's made with all English ingredients and it's, and it's more similar to your traditional English ale yeah. rather than a continental It's Trappist quite a unique beer, like, because yes. um, I, I had it again, obviously, with, when you came to Sheffield with the bottles that you gave me. Yeah. And um, it's interesting how you get that you get that earthiness that you would associate with like English bitters, mm, but there's also mm. there, there is also a, a Trappist Belgian-y yeah. tang to it as well, and it, I think it kind of saddles nicely between those two. It's very yeah. drinkable. What seven point four percent? Seven point four. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, with the help of Constant Kinemans, who's our brewing consultant, yep. our quality auditor. He um, works also for the International Trappist Association. Yep, and uh, he 
uh, helped develop the recipe and then each recipe that was uh, developed was tested by the community yeah because it, it we wanted it to be um a beer that was that the community enjoyed drinking mm. and wanted to drink rather than being a commercial beer that um you might say okay well this is the one that will sell the best but yeah. if the community don't like it then you know that's not really <clears throat> part of the ethos here so yep um so it, i mean they still drink it i joke and say it's their table beer obviously it's 7.4 percent so it's not really a table <laughs> beer in the way that sort of uh, vesmal extra has yep. just come out i think that's sort of 4.8 is it something low like yeah. that yeah um but th- it is drunk on the table <laughs> um <laughs> sundays holy days um feasts when we have visitors as well right. in particular um so it is very much part of the community uh, and that's really really key here um so what we're looking at now, these were the old garages, um, which are now the plant rooms. And you can hear the uh, <laughs> cooling unit kicking yeah. in. Um, so we got all of our equipment from Germany, um, from John Albrecht to Munich. And um, it's really, really top of the range stuff. They spent a lot of money on it, they didn't skimp. Um, we were lucky to have a donation. That's in the, yep. uh, in the documentary as well. Very generous. Um, so that in enabled us to um, really get top of the range kit um and it, if anything it's very over engineered you know i think our cooler can handle you know a dozen fermenters and, and we've only got two yeah so um it's uh very rarely you know do we have uh do we have issues with it um so yeah we've just got the steam generator in here uh we're just, yeah steam generators in here right. um our cooling units outside with a co2 and then um, this is our goods inward milling room here. Yep. Um, so it's not the most salubrious entrance. <laughs> yes, I when when I came in early, I was like, am I going into some kind of generator room? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it does very much look like that. And I do stress that during the um, <laughs> the tours that we do. Um, you can see out here as well. This is the waste pipe for the um, spent grains. Ah, okay, yeah. So yeah. Maria's wisely parts of car slightly back from. Um, <laughs> but all of our spent grains uh, go to um, our local farmer friends across the road and they give it to their um their cows yeah um and just on a brewing day uh or the day before uh father mateus will will give them a call and say just bring the trailer over so he just tracks that over uh, and then we brew two days in a row and um, one brew each day and uh, that'll fill up it'll take it away and then obviously because you know the activated it's because uh, the uh, malt has been activated it's really sweet and the cows yeah. really enjoy it so they love it and we we do that free of charge you know um we like to support obviously the farmer community around here um it does if you look on the far end when i when i bring people out of the brewery <laughs> it's it's what is sort of the storeroom and the end of the process mm. is, is a more <laughs> enticing uh, appealing look to it um but and you'll get a sense when you look at this of how the brewery is within the original um building mm. so this down here is the bottling room right which you can see and that's the the bottom floor here okay and then that white door is the storeroom so that's the end of it so it's important to be a trappers brewer you need three things you need to be uh on the grounds of a trappers monastery don't have to be within the within the building but we happen to be yep so that's important um and then it has to be at least supervised by a monk and it has to be uh, all the money has to go to charity um well there's no profit to be made all of the all of the uh, proceeds in the brewery have to go over back into the community back into the order as a whole um and after that any anything to charity so there's no there's no real profit to be made yeah um we're lucky that our projections 
when we started we've exceeded them every year so far so that we should um, um, be able to start giving t um, to charity uh, in the next few years uh, at the moment most of the money uh, goes into much needed uh, repairs in the monastery proper right. um, which as you can imagine we've got a 19th century building here with <laughs> yeah. 200 rooms um, it takes a lot to upkeep it we, uh, and we're doing a program of modernization at the moment um, from a point of fire safety, electricals, plumbing, all of these things, uh, none of it comes very cheap. Mm. Um, so the brewery is um, a godsend from that point of view. Uh, I just had a quote for a, we need to fit a fire hydrant outside the front of the oh, area. Yeah. yeah, and I think that was uh, just shy of 40 grand. So, <laughs> wow. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's uh, things like that. Um, so we don't make uh, tons of money, um, but all the money we make is very important and mm. very necessary. Um, so anyone buying Tint Meadow can feel good about that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Should we want to take a look inside? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, so now in the uh, milling room, this is the goods, goods inward. Um, so where you are standing is where the malts would normally be. Now we're on a production schedule because of the monastic rhythm of life. That is the priority. Father Mateus is the head brewer here currently. Um, he took over from Father Michael. The priority is the monastic life. Now they pray seven times a day and obviously have other duties. So as much as the brewery fits into that, it also is subjugated, it's, it comes below that. So, so how does that work on a brew day? So... Because um, I used to work for a church and we had to like pray at nine, 12 and three every day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And like, whenever you want to do a meeting or anything, yeah. it was just like, oh, now I've got to go pray. You know, and it completely like messed up your meetings and your workflow and all the rest of it. Now, that was an office-based job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but here, when it's a process, like, how does that work? So during, I mean, we'll ask Father Mateus about this later, he'll be able to explain better, but during the brewing days, so he'll brew, um, so one brew is 2,000 litres, um, and our, or our brew house is 2,000 litres, but our fermenters and our BBTs are 4,000. Right. So um, what we do is, or what Father Mateus does, is he'll brew two days in a row, one week. Typically he does Friday, Saturday, because that works best for him. Yep. Um, obviously Sunday's a no-go, but they work Monday through Saturday. Um, all, the, all of the uh, community do. Uh, and <clears throat> he'll, he'll um, fit it between, say, seven in the morning uh, and um, three in the afternoon. And, and you've got during that time what they call the little hours. Right. So it's, I mean, easy for me to say, but it's not as important for him to be in church for those. So he prays them himself as he brews. We'd have to ask him about how exactly right. he fits that in. Um, but then also I do know that he sees, or certainly tries to see, as all the Trappist um, Cistercian monks um, do, is, is it's aura et labora, so it's a prayer and work. And you should see your work as uh, a gift to God. So... Um, I know he's spoken to me before and other people about how he tries to obviously whilst he's doing all of this brewing work to see it as part of his monastic life yeah. part of his his gift to God that day um, so um, yeah we'll, we'll ask him about that it's a good question but uh, I've got it on my, my list I've yeah, got some yeah, questions yeah, like absolutely. that um, but typically for example uh, every second week we bottle um, and we have a sort of hour hour and a half for our lunch and then prayers and we combine sex to none and do prayers um, during that bottling. Um, so <clears throat> it's an important consideration mm. uh, and one you wouldn't get at many breweries. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, we haven't got huge amounts of storage um, within this area, so um, we do uh, order our malt uh, 
enough for the two brews yep. uh, every two weeks. Um, so that's why Farmateus just brewed Friday, Saturday. Um, so that's why there's no um, malts here currently. I see. Uh, and then we've got the mini equipment here. So everything goes through yep. here, all done by hand. Um, so you're taking 25 kilo bags up here. Um, you can smell that now. <laughs> I've lifted it smells, up. It smells amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're taking 25 kilo bags up by hand, putting yep. them in here. So it's quite physical work as well, mm. especially in, in the first part of the day. And so, yeah, so in here we just store uh, the malt uh, and the sugar. Um, and then you come through this door and we go into the brewery proper. So you put in the sugar in with the, with the malt to go in the mash, or do you weigh it out and then put it in the brew kettle? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. right, so this is the brew house. Yeah. Look at this. Can, I've not actually been up here yet. Can we go yeah, up here? Yeah, go up. Awesome. Yeah, so uh, how, how big is the... Um, how many hectolitres is this? And uh, where was it built? So this is German. It's yeah. from uh, John Albert in uh, Munich. Yeah. And uh, Brau Technique, I think they're called. Uh, and um, it's a two-part system. These are 2,000 um, litres. Yeah. Um, and so we've got the mash kettle, lauter tan. Um, so we mash, uh, louter, boil, um, and what we're looking at here for the listeners is we've got a raised platform above, and then we've also got our computer. Um, it's an automated brew house, so um, we use CO2 to push it around the system. Right. And you'll see that um, the pipes going all around. <laughs> yeah. So it. The only stage where we have to uh, bring uh, hoses in, not even pumps, um, is where we've got uh, two fermenters here on the left-hand side. They, uh, if you look on the wall there, we've got two yep. pipes and they go through to the BBTs because the bottom room's a separate room. Yep. Um, so we just use pressure um, and we just connect the hoses and the um, fermenters are set at higher pressure so it will just naturally go through into the BBTs. Um, now, as I said earlier, it's two brews to one um, fermenter. So Father Mateus will brew two days in a row, um, usually a Friday, Saturday. Uh, and then, so that's two, two brews of 2,000 litres, and then our um, fermenters are, it's 4,000. The capacity is 5450, right. um, but obviously to allow for fermentation and, and um, the, our equipment, um, it's 4,000 litres uh, goes in there. And then we've got BBTs in the bottom room on the other side, and, and they're, they look smaller, but they're actually just they're shorter and fatter. They were specially designed to fit into our right. building room because we haven't got the um, headspace. So this was all part of the community. This was actually the laundry and where we're standing now. Um, so this originally was part of the farm buildings in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they brought it into the community, I think, in 1932. Um, so this was the laundry and then down in the bottom room was the kitchens and what is now our storeroom uh, was the refectory because the community grew, um, particularly after the Second World War. So they moved out yep. the original, the refectory is where the monks dine um, together. Um, so they moved out the original uh, 19th century refectory, uh, which is in the enclosure, which was all designed by uh, Pugin, who did um, Houses of Parliament. Um, so we're a grade two listed building. Um, but when the community got too big for that, they extended the buildings here, changed these farm buildings into working monastic buildings. Uh, and then uh, as the community has got smaller in recent years, they've moved back into the original refectory. And we've been able to uh, use what these areas um, are no longer necessary to have such large laundry kitchen. 
dining hall. So and we've been able to make use of that so that we're in the thumb, the footprint of the monastery, right. the brewery itself. So we haven't had to build anything exterior. Obviously, it comes with its own issues in that, you know, we're in a 19th century building here. And we have issues, um, you know, periodically with damp and things like that. As you can see, we've, we've just done a new damp course on the outside of these yep. walls. So these just need to be scraped down and painted. Um, you can see, if you look over here um, on the wall, uh, where we bought the fermenters in, so and we have actually got space for one more fermenter. Oh right, yeah, um, wow. So okay, we've got, yeah. we got the pipework here ready that's yep. just capped off, uh, and this wall does come out, so we could bring another one in on its side. Um, so we could have three fermenters, oh, amazing. Um, which we would, considering uh, the fermentation is it, it's about two weeks in the tank. Um, so um, we try and keep everything full, and we and we do work on a two-week system in that it's brewing one week, bottling the next week. Um, so. Uh, but so that works with the two week fermentation but obviously if we were going to uh, make another beer mm. um, it, we probably would need another fermenter yeah so what, what's your churn rate like then for selling it because I know you've said that you only make so much and obviously yeah, so you're not looking to push bigger and bigger but like how, how quickly will it take you to sell this batch so everything that has been produced this year has been allocated already Right. So it hasn't been sold as such, um, but at the beginning of the year, um, we have a, I make a production schedule. Um, based on that schedule, I know how much beer we're going to have. Um, I earn the side of caution, so I go for a lower estimate, and then obviously anything above that is a bonus. Yep. Uh, and we're doing really well this year, actually. We are producing more. Um, that, you know, as we've all brewing, that obviously comes down to um, each batch. It can vary a little bit. Mm. Um, and so uh, uh, I think... I think I did the production based on an average of 930 cases, might be 932, and we're averaging closer to 940 at the moment, so obviously over the year that does make a bit of a difference. Um, it's about 11,500 bottles ago. Right. And um, the in terms of yeah, selling it, it's the, the allocations are figured out in advance so that I, would, I can tell you right now, if I looked at my spreadsheet, this, this beer and this ferment, if I look at what brew it is, because we do 50 brews a year, because we have a week off at Easter, a week off at Christmas, and we have 25 bottlings a year, Right. so that's every other week. Um, it's two brews, one bottling. Um, so I could look at my spreadsheet, I could tell you exactly where that's allocated to. Right. Now it might come to it at the time, we might say, okay, well, our UK wholesalers, you know, actually don't need that at that time, so, we're, and we need a bit more in the shop, so, we, you know, we can sort of fiddle it a bit, move it around a little bit, but there's certainly um, no problem in, in, in selling it. When I started, it was a case of um, making it and then selling it. Um, and then sometimes they had beer, sometimes they yeah, don't. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's not the case anymore. Uh, so at the moment, for example, when we're bottling, uh, we'll bottle next week, and that is going to the Netherlands. So our European distributors in the Netherlands um, so we'll do about three and a half batches for them, makes a whole lorry load. Right. Uh, 26 pallets. And off it and goes. High, and then, yeah, they'll come and collect in July. So they need to know that time ahead. So how, how's Brexit affected sending beer to Europe for you? So uh, it's made it trickier, definitely, especially because we don't have the expertise um, uh, in paperwork. Um, so... I don't have the, the time or the money or the inclination to be doing all this sort of documentation. Uh, so it used to be the case that, for example, for the Netherlands, um, a guy and his wife would turn up who didn't really speak English, you know, with a van, say they were here to right. collect beer for the Netherlands, 
Um, and then we'd load them up and they'd drive off and somehow it would get there. Yep. Um, it doesn't quite work like that anymore. Unfortunately, there's a bit more um, thinking has to go into it. Uh, so uh, generally what we've done is uh, previously we would send a few pallets to, say, Italy, a few pallets to France, a few pallets to uh, Germany. Um, now um, we, go, we have one European distributor um, for the EU, uh, and that is uh, Volsus Holst and they're based in Holst in the Netherlands right. and um, they do a lot of the Trappist beers so uh, particularly Vesmar is the biggest mm. uh, and so we go directly through them and they do the paperwork or um, most of what they can do you know we just have to do a little bit here and then as soon as it leaves uh, it has to be paid for uh, before it leaves it's the same with all our export customers and as soon as it leaves our doors out there which is a registered alcohol uh, warehouse yep. uh, then it's their responsibility um, so it's because uh, previously we had had issues with you know um, people not paying and that you know and you people say oh how could you do that to monks but it's, uh, people, <laughs> people do people do yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely <laughs> uh, so it's we've we've streamlined that process right and then through them we're going into Canada and the United States um, through their contacts um, so it's been it's a really beneficial arrangement yeah absolutely now I have to ask above your brew kettle. Who's, the, who's this guy? Uh, so this is St. Arnulf of Metz, I believe. Uh, and he is patron saint of brewers, of brewing. Uh, so he was actually a gift from Constant Kinemans, who is our uh, brewing consultant, um, who helped set up the brewery, helped set up Zunder as well, a number of years before in the Netherlands. Uh, and um, he was made the patron saint uh, of brewers and brewing um, for his role in um, helping to stop the plague um, oh, okay. in his uh, diocese um, in I think it was the 16th century uh, and he um, had beer brewed uh, that was then distributed mm. so people weren't drinking the water I think it was a, they said the plague I think it was an outbreak of cholera or something right. um, and um, yeah helped to save obviously many lives uh, looks like he's wearing gloves he's got his PPE on yeah exactly yeah that's <laughs> it and he's got his barrel as well there you go awesome <laughs> and so um, after it's fermented yeah, so um, we've got mash kettle out of town. We've got a whirlpool around there. Yep. Um, whirlpool straight into the fermenter. This is all piped. Uh, and then, yeah, after it's fermented, we obviously we'll go down here. We'll monitor the fermentation. I have to ask, have you ever tried it from Tang? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Um, it's nice. It's not as well-rounded, obviously. It's right. not as, well, as developed. Um, and because we're, you know, we're a secondary fermentation as well, uh, I think it comes up about 4% after right. the first fermentation. Oh, right, okay, um, yeah. So, yeah, we have tried it because we, we thought about casking it. Right. Um, but oh. then we decided that um, it would be better to make a second beer that were, you know, just for cask mm. rather than presenting an inferior yeah. version of Tint Meadow because it wasn't made to be cast. Um, we get loads of asks for that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's perfectly fine. It's, um, yeah, a lot lighter, obviously. Yeah. Um, so from here, it'll go f on the hoses through to... Uh, the BBTs on the other side of that wall. Uh, and then the epic bottling line. Yeah, so now we're in the bottling room. Um, so we bottle on site, uh, have done ever since the start. Um, so what you're looking at now is our two custom-made uh, 4,000 litre BBTs. As uh, so you can see, they're both full at the moment. So like I said, we're trying to keep everything full. Um, so as far as Mateus was saying earlier, when, after we bottled, he'll clean the BBT out that day. Uh, and then um, he, he'll move uh, a fermenter through to the BBT and they can clean that ferment out and start the whole brewing process again. Yeah. Um, so it came to its own, we had a lightning strike at the Abbey last year right. um, and that 
blew all the electrics Goodness. in the whole abbey and at the brewery. Unfortunately, we've isolated it now, but it was connected. Um, so we're such an automated system, um, so we couldn't brew. Uh, so, but we were lucky that we had full BBTs and full fermenters at that time. Uh, it took about six weeks because um, we had to do it over Zoom with the guys in Germany. Couldn't come over at the time. Right. Wow. So they're doing um, it all on Zoom. So yeah. Exactly. Wow. Trying Crazy. to diagnose what was what was wrong. Uh, it turned out in the end that it was the actual motherboard. So the the fault the diagnostic system was actually what was at fault. So it was diagnosing <laughs> faults that didn't exist. Right. I so see. we would change sensors <laughs> and things, and then another fault would come up, and then we realised actually it was the board. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So about six weeks to figure that out. And we, the funny thing is, we do actually have a lightning conductor, and it. And we realised it hadn't been uh, looked at, maintained for right. many years. So we had it looked at, and then uh, about a month later, the yep. lightning strike. It didn't work. <laughs> yeah. It hit the um, flagpole right. on the top of the abbey, which, if you look around, we're in a, a little bit of a valley, but we're in the highest part of um, Leicestershire here. It's just across the, just across the road there, and um, it yeah. So the abbey itself does stick out above the valley. And um, it hit the flagpole, and then we've got our um, internet router up right. there. Uh, so it hit that and went through all the electrics in the entire place. So, <laughs> yeah, and in fact, we're still finding stuff. The other day, we um, found a printer that wasn't working. Wow, so I think it was, must have been anything that was plugged in at the time. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't ideal. Luckily, uh, we did have lightning insurance, which right. I didn't know was a real I thing. Didn't, I didn't know that was a yeah, thing either. Yeah, exactly. I thought we'd, they'd just say it was an act of God, but, yeah. <laughs> but we did get all of that back eventually. Um, so it was just a bit of a process of replacing things. In fact, my phone still in my office still doesn't work, <laughs> um, but I don't mind that so much. So how, how, long is, how long is a bottling day when you're packaging all this? So yeah, it's, uh, it's a good question. When I started, it was, um, well, just before they were doing it as one day, but if you have issues, um, which invariably there are, mm. uh, it could be a really long day. Yeah. Um, so we split it into two days. And um, I think as well, it helps because, it, you know, it's, it's physical work. It's also, you know, it, it's tedious, you know, yep. it's repetitive. So your mind can wonder, especially if you're doing it for a long time and, and you start, you know, human error creeps in and then, you know, you get people get tired. So... I think you get the longer you go on that first day, the the worse <laughs> the work yeah. gets, um, which is kind of inevitable. Um, but so that will start with Father Mateus will do the priming. Um, he'll start that about um, six thirty-seven in the morning. Right, is that what that? That's what that cone is that for. That cone exactly. is for. Yeah, exactly. So that involves. Um, so the morning of the bottling, this is where we're starting that second fermentation. Mm. So we'll do a calculation. We'll figure out how much sugar, how much yeast needs to be added based on the beer um, that's already in there um, to get that up to the seven point four mark that we're yep. looking for in ABV terms. So we'll bring that cone in, um, and w it connects um, with the hoses. Uh, to the BBT and we're drawing it out and we're adding the sugar and the yeast and then using CO2 uh, to agitate that tank yep. so it all gets around. mixed yeah exactly so yeah. we haven't just got it in one spot um, so I, I learned that lesson early on in my brewing journey when right. I, I first upscaled I, um, I just added the sugar into a a larger fermenter and thought, oh, I'd be fine. Yeah. And then there were some bottles that were spot on and most exactly. of them weren't. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'm like, yeah. what? This isn't mixed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the step above that would be to do, which I know they do in um, Vesplatron, uh, is to do an inline dosage. Right. So each bottle will get an exact dosage right, of sugar and yeah. yeast. Um, so that would be, yeah. The uh, But they're on a different scale to us, but um, it's... Uh, then you, you know exactly what, that each bottle's getting exactly mm. the same, but it's, uh, it's quite a piece of kit. Do you have like a DO meter here for uh, reading... 
uh, oxygen and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, Fab Mateus. Um, yeah, I mean, w- even in terms of the measurements and things, you know, I know he's a monk, but we do. Fab Mateus does, does have his iPad, and we have most of the things run through that. So, right. Um, yeah, it's like, it, you know, I think people expect when it comes to a trapper's brewery for it to be sort of big um, oak wooden yep. sort of fermenters and everything to be <laughs> yes. barrels and, and that sort of thing and, and, uh, and someone did say to me the other week that um, they said oh do you brew in caves which I don't know where they've got that from <laughs> um, but <laughs> it's uh, yeah it's it, they're always surprised when they come in it's a very modern uh, setup and um, it, we've really uh, reaped the benefits of that in terms of um, we don't need to buy any more equipment for a long time, really. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, I think on all of this, um, the brew house equipment has got sort of ten years on it, uh, and that's for much larger scale mm. brewing than we're doing. I mean, the only issues we have, and that's more with the bottling line, is that we don't use it enough. Yeah, you know, as any sort of any anyone with an engineering lean would know, you know, these things are, are made to be used, uh, and um, it's it's about. Uh, because we only use them sort of for two days every two weeks, so we have our maintenance based off that rather than on under usage rather than over usage. Mm. Um, but yeah, so we'll, we'll start that priming. That'll take about two hours, so we're ready to bottle yep. from about nine. Um, so by the time we've got everything set up, um, if we look down the bottling line, so what you've got here is actually two pieces of equipment. Um, so we've got a Maheen six head filler here. Yep. Um, obviously, a well known company in the US. Uh, uh, but that is actually supposed to be a manual. Um, manually fed uh, so someone at the bottom at the back of it stood at the back right. feeding six bottles, bottles on um, so we've had Cariff which is a local engineering company uh, retrofit their bottling line to that uh, so it starts at the far end there with uh, we've got a turntable right and we have a human depalletizer uh, one of the brothers or myself or one of our volunteers um, will uh, will bring pallets of our bottles in here and they'll take them off and stick them onto the turntable there uh, and then it feeds along uh, these labels get dated and uh, we put a two-year best before on it and it was just seen as an industry sort of standard when we started um, we're getting we're just past four years now uh, and we've tasted those and they still taste good so if we get to five years and they still taste good then we'll probably up that to five yep. years um, and there's there's a good market second-hand market in the sort of aged um, trappers beers well, I know, for example, Orval put five years on theirs, mm. but people, you know, it's really prized to have like a 10, 15, 20-year-old yeah. Orval. So we'll come through here. This is our labeler. Um, you can see the labels on the roll now. Yep. So here it gets dated as it comes through. As the bottle comes through here, it'll get labeled. This flywheel here will just send them through at the appropriate gaps. Uh, and then basically all along the line, you've got these sensors. So ne- the next stop here is the rinser, and the rinser can do nine bottles at a time. So these sensors will know, um, will f- keep feeding through until it gets to here, so that they have enough to go in. Yep. Uh, and then on the far side, there's another sensor, um, which knows, so if it's full to there, then it won't allow it to rinse. Right. If it's beyond there, then it allows it to rinse. And it just works like that all the way down the line, the conveyor belt. So once you've rinsed, just a, a disinfectant, a little bit of uh, diluted like paracetic acid. Right. Make sure the bottles are completely clean and we don't want any contamination. And it will come along the conveyor belt and then we've just got a, a, a sort of quite simple push arm um, system. Right. Yep. Um, so that we've got a sensor here and then once that's full, um, once 
that's reading no bottles, then the next bottles will get pushed onto the back of the filler. Yep. It does because it's a bit of a retrofit. It does mean you do need someone here just to keep an eye on it, just yep. to make sure the bottles line up perfectly. Because if they're even just a, you know a couple of millimeters out, then the fill head when it comes down isn't 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 going to fit in the bottle, mm. and then you know you've got potential of uh, damaging the bottle or breakage, and then you're going to have to throw away. Uh, you know, an awful lot of beer and bottles and that. Oh, so goodness, the breakage yeah, like, exactly. thing in your hassock, you know, it's like... Yeah, just, exactly. It's, exactly. I mean, with cans and stuff, it's it's just... They just crumple up and it's just easy to, like, mm. get rid of them. But, like, mm. with, when it's glass, you know, having to clear your whole line and everything... And yeah, just exactly. And do a complete, like, yeah. clean down just I mean, you're, you're talking about getting rid of 12 lines of six bottles there. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, half of which will be filled. And um, it's also just the time and the energy that takes then yeah. to reset it. Um, so um, we have got to a point now um, where we don't really struggle with that, but but we do just to help to you know really eliminate that risk. We do have someone who just stands yeah. there. Um, we've got a computer here that will show you everything in terms of pressure, the speed of the machine, the fill levels. Um, so that's all monitored from here. Father Mateus will usually do that, uh, and then as it goes through, the fill head comes down. That's a six fill head, mm. and the next underneath. Um, um, or beyond that, sorry, there's a pneumatic capper. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> there's a, a wheel here, and that picks them up, picks up the crowns um, magnetically and feeds them into oh, the hopper. Nice. And then as it, after it's been filled on the next line, it will get crowned. And then it comes out, and it just works off gravity and back pressure. Yeah. Um, so we take the bottles. We leave about four lines of bottles, and after that, we just have two people standing on either side of the table, and they fill our 12 cases and then we just put an empty pallet down on the floor we've got plenty of space at the spacious room uh, and then we'll fill that pallet and depending on where it's going if it goes to the uk or sells in the shop we stack it five high if it's going abroad typically seven sometimes eight yeah. high um and then yeah and from here it goes through into the secondary fermentation room i presume it doesn't purge with co2 this no it does not no no we don't but i guess with having the yeast in the bottle then it's going to be exactly exactly yeah that's it yeah yeah so no it's just uh, it's just air right that, that um pushes it through it? and it and it's quite simplistic in terms of um the uh the fill heads are just done on actually where they're set mm -hmm. mechanically there's no computerized element to that right so if you want if if say if you're filling a bit too much then you just have to like adjust the level of where all the fill heads are. Yep. Um, and that's something you obviously we just have to monitor and make sure we, we're selling in 330. Yeah. Um, so uh, we just have to make sure um, that we're not under or over that, basically. So, but after you've done, I mean, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of bottles I've packed personally, but you just, you can pick one out of a hundred and know that, and that, you know. Yeah. And we have a specially made gauge that fits onto our bottles that tells you. Um, quickly exactly um, how that is filled um, so I mean it's I you know there are issues with it like with any machine um, but then when I go to say for example a Seba meeting and I speak to someone who bottles by hand then you feel quite lucky really <laughs> <laughs> oh mate I've done it I've been there done that <laughs> exactly um, so from here we just pallet truck them through take you through we come first into the storeroom and here is the secondary fermentation room and this is going to be the next stage right i presume it's warmer in here than absolutely oh yeah these <laughs> so i think if we look um just get the thermometer got a digital thermometer in here so this should be somewhere in the high 20s 
so the ambient temperature at the moment is about 29 degrees and we'll just probe we've got a probe on this and we'll just probe down into we're looking at stacks of um pallets of beer so we want it about 22 degrees yep. to aid that secondary fermentation um so we'll probe down into the middle of these just to make sure we're getting 22 in the middle yeah and that's why it's around 29 ambient in the room yeah um but it's lovely being in here in winter isn't it yeah in the winter in the summer not so much but yeah it's um in the winter it's it's quite a cold uh, building and i like how you've got the little gauges on top of the bottles yes so as i've said it's over two days so we pressure gauge one bottle from each day yep uh, and then that's just how we monitor that secondary fermentation yep so you'll see that pressure continue to rise it usually gets gets up to about um four um psi and um then it will start to retreat, uh, and as it levels off, we know that that secondary fermentation right. is is not is not going to be finished, but it's it's slowed down, uh, and then we can sell that. That's a process that takes about ten days. Right. Um, but if we don't have to sell it, if you can see at the moment it's full, pretty much. Um, you know we've got four bottlings worth in here, um, so. Um, if we don't need to take it out of here, then I don't take it out because if it, you know it's it's not gonna do any harm. If anything, it's gonna do it good no, to yes. to sit in here. And, and you know the the main sort of thing you're watching out again it's, is con any contamination. Mm. Um, so the longer it stays in here, the better from that point of view. Yeah. Um, and then from here, when we're satisfied, we do our checks and we're satisfied that the secondary fermentation is slowed, then we will take it. And we don't have a lab on site, so we just take it to a local uh, lab in Nottingham, and we have. Um, uh, just some small checks run on it just to make, make sure there's no contamination make sure the ABV is where it should yep. be obviously from our legal obligations uh, and then we'll have a tasting and we'll bring the community in six or seven members of the community and we'll do about four batches and we'll just taste them all um, make sure um, that they are uh, tasting as they should be yep. um, and that's an important bit for the community to get involved with too. Fantastic. so where did um, where did Father Mateus train to be a brewer? Uh, so, the, and the initial training is in the Netherlands. Yep. Uh, and then um, we had Father Michael as a previous brewer. Yep. So he stayed for I think it was about two months um, to help. Um, uh, they brewed together, uh, and then because uh, he knew nothing before Father Matthias, um, and then uh, we have our brewing consultant. He comes over about once every two to three months. And he'll stay for a week and and right. do a couple of brews. Uh, he was just here a few weeks ago, actually, so he still comes over, and just maintains that um, uh, that sort of uh, consistency and, and make sure we're doing everything everything as should be done. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a process of ongoing training, I suppose Amazing. he would say. Um, and yeah, this is just the storeroom. So this is our alcohol warehouse. Um, so as everything has to be duty paid before it leaves unless it's going on bond or going overseas um but yeah this is a this is a registered warehouse and in here we just keep our different batches um so these are lined up for the shop over here so those are for local wholesale those you'll see them written on we've yeah. got our gift sets uh, that the community package they'll do a couple of pallets yep um you know together uh, it doesn't take very long we're sort of uh, 10 or 15 of them down here um so we do that every few months uh, and then we've got our archive over here. So we've got a, a, a batch. The archive, love yeah. it. So the first um, row, uh, or the first case that comes off, first two rows that come off, uh, go into uh, the archive, we call it. So there's one uh, case from each batch. Um, and they get, we've literally just started a second one here. Um, so 
we're up to, I think we just bottled Tint Meadow 91. Right. Um, so, yeah, so I've got a case from each one. So if someone said they had a problem with it, we can obviously go back and, 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 check. and taste it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then this is our beer for ageing, which is something we've started recently, just um, three or four months ago. And uh, so just take four or five cases from each batch um, just to age them um, separately. So uh, we can just see how they go and um, see if that's something we want to get into selling in future. It's something people ask about. Uh, and then we re try and reuse obviously the price of cardboard and and, uh, and they're quite special boxes as well with the, like the little yes kind of we've got our die cuts yeah design, exactly so. yeah so there's fifteen of these um, um, these windows in the, in the church and that is um, the logo of Tint Meadow um, so it's for the mysteries of the rosary um, and um, yeah so they're die cut into the into each case individually and then you also see it on the crowns. Um, so yeah, they, I mean they're not cheap to get as well, but then also, you know, being good to the environment, we try and reuse them mm. um, two, three times really. Um, if people uh, locally are quite good about returning them, and then obviously we're selling singles in the shops and things like that. Yep. So we just put those on the top when we're bottling, just to make sure. Um, yeah. Because the most pressure obviously be low down, uh, and then this is what we call the community beer, uh, which is. Uh, so we'll keep a couple um, of cases. When it started, it used to be, it, it used to be the case that um, if things weren't right with the beer, then they'd be put to one side. So something went wrong with the label, or we thought maybe oh there's too much um, sediment in these. Yep. You know, uh, then they'd be put to one side, and then the community could drink them. So we wouldn't be selling them. Yeah. Uh, but as we've got better at bottling, as as time has gone on, now we purposely keep a couple of cases yeah. aside. Um, so I've been sifting through these because uh, there was a bit of no rhyme or reason really to them. So just try and uh, put them <laughs> put them together, but it's a long process. Um, so that's what sort of all of these are really. And then just recently, we started um, a local craftsman in Whitwick. He makes with wood um, that comes from the abbey. So occasionally we have to fell trees. You know, yeah. we just had one taken down. For example, where the, you know, it, the root system can support it anymore, and it was near a local um, a footpath, um, so we had to take that down. Sadly, um, but we always we, we always plant um, two trees, you know, for every tree we take down. Mm. Uh, but um, with uh, wood that comes off the Abbey Estate, then we 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 dry that, and um, we have that. We've just recently had that made into some crates for storage. Yeah, those crates are brilliant. Yeah, they're good, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, I was really happy with them. So he makes that locally, and 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 it's good to support local business there as well. And um, yeah, so we've got some twenty fours, and we'll be doing some sixes hopefully um, with them soon. And then that obviously helps with the with the cardboards, the uh, cost and the environment impact of that as well. Awesome. Um, and then yeah, you can see as well how this. What I was saying earlier, this was the refectory yeah. originally. So you can see. Um, these pillars came from an uh, earlier from the original um, Tint Meadow on Tint Meadow the, when they first came they they went into a cottage um, before they built the monastery right and these pillars come from there actually um, so and you can see obviously the crucifix on the window um, and, it, and they used to run the tables like lengthways right. like along here it's a bit more industrial looking now yeah, <laughs> yeah. Brill well should we go meet Father Matthias yeah absolutely Right, so I'm here with both Peter, you've heard already, and Father Matthias. Hello. Hello. I have to say, as, as a brewer and a, a man of faith myself, I've got so many questions about monastic rhythms of, of being a monk and the technical questions of brewing like a monk. Um, so I just want to first say grace and peace to you from a fellow brother. And um, <laughs> I've been really excited about coming here, so I just, I just feel really honoured. 
to okay. be to be sat here oh, well. uh, with you guys and just to see it myself. I'm going to break these questions down, I guess, into two sections. The, the first bit will be a little bit more, I guess, faith-centred and how faith and beer tie together. And uh, just for the benefit of some of the listeners who might be familiar with my own beer journey, Running Emmanuel's, which is a faith-centred brewery, I've had to fudge my way through that journey a lot myself because it's like I've not really known who to turn to with some of those more spiritual questions so some of it is going to be a little bit self-indulgent in picking your brains and and how that all works um, in the context of a, a Trappist brewery but for anyone that maybe wants to skip that a little bit and it's just interesting the brewing we'll, we'll go on some more technical brewing questions about the beer and everything so I guess I want to start with this question how does brewing beer fit in with the story of the wider church and the monastic life both I guess from a historical perspective and what does it look like day to day here for you at the Abbey? Um, so from the historical perspective first uh, in middle ages drinking beer was much more safer for or healthier than, than drinking water mm. uh, so the there was the custom that that they drink in ref, just a light beer, table beer, uh, and I think that it's uh, how it starts. That they, that was just a normal product. You know, when you go to France, they they drink wine to, for example, you know, to to lunch, and it's nothing extraordinary. Everyone do it, and and in my country, I, I came from Poland. Uh, drinking is suspicious and if you drink uh, wine every day uh, uh, during the lunch it will oh he's the alcoholic or something like that yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, it's a completely different context so yeah. i think that from the historical point of view uh, yeah that was that it's an interesting story which i like to say that uh, one of the saints of our order saint Lutgard, she was the nun uh, in the Netherlands in the Middle Ages and she was the, the mystic and uh, three times during her lifetime uh, she fasted yes. fast. Fast. she fasted uh, through seven years so three times for seven years just living just on the bread and beer. <laughs> Living the dream. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's uh, after that story, uh, you know, there is no question of if it's fitting to monastic custom. Yeah. To, to, uh, yeah. So, I mean, how, how does it work on a, a day to day um, rhythm for you? Because Peter was telling me about the brewing comes secondary to you know, the prayer and monastic life. And yeah. I, I used to work for a church and we used to have to pray three times a day. Yeah. It was a desk job, so I used to find it really frustrating when I have to break off doing something. But with a process like brewing, I'm so interested, like, how you sort of manage all that. Particularly if, like, something goes wrong in the, you know, the brewing process, which sometimes, you know, these things happen. Uh, so, first of all, monks also need the money to, to live. Yes, so this is the just the way we decide to get money. And before we had a, a cows and we sell milk, and now we have a brewery and we sell the beer. And yes, and the, the second one is better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> also from the economical yeah. point yeah. of view. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think this is the you know very normal perspective. And 
it is nothing wrong to to brew the beer and that was the, the uh, uh, why we decided to 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 start the, the brewery because that was the part of tradition of our orders cows and beer. So uh, we were thinking maybe it's, you know, it will fit all together mm. just to revalidate. Exactly. This idea. And, yeah, and it goes. So. Yeah. So how, how do you fit the, the rhythm of prayer around at like a brew day, for example? Okay, I can, I can tell you myself. So my brewing day starts as usual at 3.30 when we start the vigil, the first morning, uh, the first prayer um, or the morning or the night, you, you can choose. Right, yeah. All right 3.30 a.m. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah of course, 3.30 a.m. So for some people it is in the middle of the night, for me it's every morning. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I will say mass with, in private uh, and have a s time for prayer. And when, when my brothers join once again in choir to, to sing uh, loads, I will start brewing, so about seven. And then you are brewers, so you know that during the brewing process there are long time mm. when nothing specially happens, when you are more or less free. So this is time when I can pray, because we pray seven times a day in office. So this is the time when, when I can say the little hours uh, or some prayers or make even so, some short reading and yeah. It is slightly different day, day than usual, I heard, but I, I am brewing alone, so I am, I am alone. There is a noise of pumps and so on, but you can get used to. And it's, there are usually very good days. Yeah. I would imagine, I'm trying to think how to word this question, like, um, just in the solitude of the brewery and the brewing process, like how, spiritually connected do you feel to god do you, do you feel like um like he's there and present as as you're doing that or or um you do you have that constant awareness or are you just kind of cracking on with brewing or uh i think it's a little depends on on day on you know how do we feel also but uh, i think the the heart of monastic life is to be such united and that there is no real difference you know what you what you are doing of course when you when you celebrate the eucharist it's a liturgy it's a liturgy but later on it's no difference if you make the gardening uh, laundry brewing uh, it, yeah it's sometimes it's a real struggle to be here and now because your mind is wandering uh, but sometimes it's, it's, it's much more easier to be present. And it's not about the thinking, the prayer is not thinking. Mm. Yeah, no, I think to be in the presence of God and thinking to be in the presence of God, it's two completely different things. Yeah. Yeah? So it's not working with, with, with your head 
and your head can be uh, busy with with brewing process what have i do next i can be focused on on the process i am doing i am responsible to make a good beer and i have to think about it but it, it in in the same time i can be in the presence of god not thinking about him but to be mm. you know now, now we are talking and i am with you and peter and i don't have to think mm. about you you are here with me yeah so that's that's interesting that that ties in with a question um i had about but I, i think there's a vast proportion of our listeners wouldn't profess to have any kind of faith you know which which has become the norm in our secular culture mm. and i was going to ask how you think that beer bridges the gap between the the sacred and the secular for people because i mean what you've just said is is very holistic in terms of like how you live your life and i know for me in my own faith that's kind of like the goal i want to get to I, yeah i'm not thinking about it it's just i i live in the the presence of of god in accordance with my beliefs and my faith um but for a lot of people they do make that distinction between well you know god and religions over there whatever mm. i'm living my life over here so i was interested how you think beer bridges the gap between the sacred and the secular for people Hmm. Uh, when I was thinking about this question, the first which which came to my mind is that beer is not the holy communion. Yes. <laughs> uh, so this is just a beer. Uh, it is the yeah. But but it is a good beer. It is produced in the monastery, and it is written the label brew by the monks of Trappist monastery and this is peter's experience we share uh, quite often that when he sell the beer or um, give a tour first he has to explain what yes. what is monks yes <laughs> what a monastery is what the monastery yeah. is so i think this is the, the some kind of evangelization and yes. this feeling this gap you know that people just start oh this is a monastery around here yeah, it's so- soft evangelization <laughs> soft <laughs> you'd call it isn't it yeah, yeah. yeah. Just i mean to introduce people to ideas that even 50 years ago would have been commonplace um, you know understanding of here is a monastery here are monks i understand what that is mm. and that people in this country now by and large wouldn't understand that yeah not at any great depth if at all mm. you know i think you said to me father not long after i started that people would understand more about the surface of the moon <laughs> yeah. than, really than right. people okay. who live up the road from them yeah. you know in terms of what what they are actually doing there and and um yeah that's i always think that when i'm um sell, you know selling the beer or doing tastings and things there's an information battle as well to be won in terms of if I was selling this in Belgium I said I've got a trappist beer for you if I move on to the beer you know you don't need to explain that mm. but in the UK you know and this is something that Spencer found as well I think in the US a trappist brewery over there that's sadly just closed is that first you have to get into people's mind what a trappist monastery is what a trappist monk is you know um so it's about how you do that uh, as well and and sometimes i have tastings where 90% of the questions are about the monastery and the monks and people are fascinated about it. and that's fine yeah and i'm happy to answer that because that comes into the evangelization mm. and on the on the other hand you have tastings where 90% of it is about the beer and they just want to talk about the beer and they're not interested about that it's monks that make it necessarily you know like, yeah. well that's fine too you know and um it's interesting because we had someone contact us recently from the america about doing a a film project here 
and and it, they're from uh, university in America and their their thesis is is based on that in secularization the young people growing up you know this is in America but I think it holds true over here are interested in a lot of different ideals whether it be sustainability um you know working with um nature um a sort of uh, a, a vague sort of idea of a, of a spirituality and, and these kind of things that and actually a lot of those um ideas <laughs> are to do with what we do here today mm. you know um but they don't see it in that light um but these are things that they aspire to and and actually a lot of the answers are here from in a monastic tradition that's been going on you know we we always talk about mindfulness now and i saw a few months ago i think i told you far about a book you know how to work like a monk right you know but there's <laughs> yeah. but there's no element of of uh, religion in there you know it, it it's yeah. it's saying oh you know you sh- you can be as productive as a monk but but don't worry about having the religious element <laughs> yeah. you know yeah, so obviously they're, they're missing the fundamental part there whatever your beliefs are um, but I think that's quite interesting that you know the, there is definitely that does resonate with people and people are fascinated when I tell them you know I say oh well they get up at 3, 3.15 in the morning to pray and you know people that fascinates people mm. and I think there is a, also this spiritual di- dimension of of the production uh, and quite invisible uh, our when we finish the brewing uh, and when the second fermentation is finished before we send a batch of beer outside I bless the beer mm. in the uh, Rituale Cisteriensis the, the book with, of blessings the old one there is a blessing special blessing for beer Uh, later on, I can bring it. I've got uh, so we can. Oh, I'd love to end on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And and uh, so the, our beer is blessed. Yeah, you pray in this short prayer. You pray that the, everyone who who will drink this beer, that this beer will be the protection uh, of his health and um, uh, and his body. Something mm-hmm. I, I will read to you later on. Yeah. yeah? Uh, so this is the, the the spiritual dimension, and because now I do not sell the beer, it's more the Peter's job. Or even we we don't have the that is Martin, the brother Martin, in the shop, which has the contact face to face with clients. Mm. But I remember uh, uh, previously I I ran the uh, the beef uh, farm, yes, and I sell the, the honey. And that was something amazing because there was the, a lot of honey uh, beekeepers around, and people say, "Yeah, the, the, their honey is good, but yours is somehow special." Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know, maybe it's just the, the way of thinking that is the, the honey from monastery. But maybe it was something like that, you know, the, the, the way you produce it, the way you are with with the bee, uh, with the bees. So here, the way you are with the grains, mm-hmm. with the whole process. Yeah, I don't want to to be too mystical, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I believe that it has an an, an effect. Yeah. yeah. I guess I've got one more question based on more of the spiritual aspect of it, which intrigues me. So given there are places in the Bible that warn against and prohibit even drunkenness, how do you and I guess other monks around the world that make beer, 
in accordance with your faith, justify brewing and the consumption of beer. So I'm, yeah. I'm just quite intrigued on sort of your, your views on all that. I know you obviously shared that story earlier about the mystic. And, yeah, but is the, the, the difference between uh, drinking in excess and just drinking to enjoy. Uh, and Bible do not uh, prohibit drinking, but uh, prohibit excess. And I think this is this is the freedom we've got as a Christians. You know, the, uh, Jesus drink a wine to every meal, probably yes. And apostles, that was this this kind of culture. And I can understand that you can make the, like a sacrifice to be a witness. And I I don't drink completely. Uh, okay, I agree. But it is nothing wrong to have a bottle of beer to you know with your lunch. And, and I think in some way it could be even more difficult and more challenging to, to drink, uh, how do you say it, uh, you know, just one, one moderation. Uh, with moderation mm -hmm. than to not drink at all. Just imagine you've got the, the uh, whole plate of lovely sweets and you like sweets. And what is easier, to eat just one and say, okay, enough? Or do not eat at Absolutely. all. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, that really is true. Uh, yeah. So yeah. I think it's a, it's a, yeah, just, just a drinking with moderation, and of course drunkenness is something wrong, yeah, and evil, and uh, it it causes a lot of evil, and of course we are against drunkenness, yeah. But just if you if you had a problem. If you, if you know that you are weak, okay, do not try it. Mm. But, you know, when you are a healthy, normal man, just enjoy it. Yeah. So let, let's move on to the brewing process and the brew itself. Um, w walk us through your typical brew day. I know you talked a little bit about prayer yeah. and stuff earlier, but just from a purely technical point of view, from grain to glass, what does your brew day look like from milling right through yeah. to packaging the beer? Okay, so... The brewing day starts the day be the day before, <laughs> right. when I am cleaning a tanks. That's not at three a.m., is it, or is it? <laughs> uh, and yeah, it's a, the cleaning is a very important yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, and it takes also time. So, move the beer from from fermenter to bright beer tank, and then clean clear the fermenter. Uh, yeah. And I, I'm putting the grains to the meal to be ready on, on, on the morning. And then uh, I describe a little the, the, my morning here yeah, when I start. So first, for, for, for someone who has no idea what, what brewing means, so first step is uh, mashings, when you, when you put your, your grains to the vessel, to the uh, mash cattle and you warm them up to activate the en enzymes. Uh, it took about, uh, I don't know, in our case, two hours, something like right. that. Uh, and then uh, you move from marsh cattle to louter tank. And so all the grains with the water is pumped to the second vessel. And then you start slowly to pump it the cattle so the grains will stay in one yeah. cattle and then uh, and a whole day 
now I'm finished cooking about when I start at seven, so cooking will be end at one o'clock. Right. So it's it's a quite long process, and then uh, again to the whirlpool, and from the whirlpool, when you add the flavoring hops, transfer to fermenter, it takes another hour, and then uh, cleaning another hour. <laughs> so it is a long day. Uh, I finished brewery about three o'clock. Right. Given that you only make one beer, what have you learned about the art of brewing and refining that single beer that maybe other brewers who listen to this podcast, many of whom brew new beers all the time or only ever brew a different beer every time, what could they learn from someone like yourself or what have you had to learn about repeating that process time and time again? When you brew only one beer, your aim is to brew always the same beer, exactly the same. Yeah? Yeah. And by, you, you learn by repeating. And so it's, uh, I think it's a very Trappist way. The, the most of Trappist monastery uh, brew one or two beers. Now they, they, they start yeah, from the commercial reasons, but mm. just a few decades ago, they just brew one, two beers and it is good. Yeah. And when you, when you repeat the same thing uh, over and over again, uh, you, you can really master it. Yeah? It's like, uh, like our monastic life. We, s- we sing psalms, whole psalter, uh, 150 psalms, every week and it's it's week after week the same prayers the same psalms and you you know the the more uh, if you must how to say it the more you master something the more free you are in that mm. so this is the, the 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 kind of you can get some kind of f- really freedom in in brewing uh, and at the same time, you, you, you're focused and you, you brew every time the, the same beer. So, yeah, I think it, it fits very well to to monotony of the monastic life. Yeah, yeah. Do you think you'll ever make any other different beers, beer styles? Or? We are thinking about that, yeah. 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 Uh, maybe in future. I think it's, yeah, it's definitely on the cards. It's yeah. just I, when people ask me that, I always say you know it's I think um, you know you've got monasteries like Orval you know Trappist monasteries have only ever made one and you've got other other ones where it's taken them a hundred years to make a second beer right. so in monastic terms there's no rush yeah. you know, we're, <laughs> yeah. not, we're, we're not a commercial enterprise we're not you know we are a charity actually so it's it's not driven by purely commercial means um, so I think yes definitely but don't press me on a date. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm aware that many monks oversee the role of brewing um, if they're not brewing it themselves like you are. Um, but if, if that's the case and a, a monastery hires lay people to come and brew on their behalf like some of the other Trappist breweries do across Europe, mm-hmm. um, how, how do you prepare people uh, for coming in to the brewery as an employee and t- to take on that role and what, what sort of things are expected of them, um, if anything, spiritually speaking? I think, uh, may Peter say, his experience. Yeah, I mean, how can you prepare for it? I don't think you can. 
really, if you've come from any sort of, um, you know, a, a standard working background, really, like I have, um, it's it's almost a bit of a shock to the system uh, in, in the terms of work. But it's a good shock, but it takes you a while to get used to it. Mm. Um, there is a lot of times where you're on your own um, because obviously the, the um, brothers are, are, are prayers. And I, whilst I'm not excluded from the cloister, um, I don't go in there willy-nilly. <laughs> Only okay. if I've got a, a, you know, a valid reason to go in there. For something would I get, would I go in, um, because that is it, it, that is their their home and, and it should be a, a enclosed. Um, so most of the time that I've spoke to you earlier about the various um, lay people who have employed here in different departments, and so um, for example, Maria would be on her own um, during lunchtime in the shop. Um, quite frequently, I'm on my own, um, and if if I didn't see Father Mateus on the day, I probably wouldn't see anyone a lot of the time um, when I'm in the brewery. Um, so that it takes there's some coming to terms with that um, but then at the same time um, we're in a beautiful surroundings you know we're in um, a, you know a, a wonderful building it's got its own idiosyncrasies um, like the floor in my office that we're sat in that uh, inexplicably started rising one day <laughs> which I was told oh don't worry that's happened before so <laughs> that's uh, something that you, you you just kind of get used to um, when we um, have our bottling days um, we uh, pray um, during lunchtime we'll do uh, sext and non combined well, myself and Father Mateus, any of the other brothers who are helping or any of the volunteers we have will all pray in, in this office um, then. Um, so there is that element of it. Um, no one's ever forced me to do that, though. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, um, I, th- I think that, you know, you, you don't have to be Christian, Catholic to work here, but it helps, right. I, I would say, <laughs> in a word. No, you, you certainly wouldn't... Um, be excluded but I, but um, I think that um, it's more about having a understanding or of the way of life and the ethos here that, that you really need um, and this is something I have in my job a lot when I get uh, people um, emailing me calling me um, you know for example I would, I, you know I'd like to sell your beer I'd like to you know buy your beer yada 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 and and when you get talking to them they they fail to understand for example they say well I'll take this much you know and you say okay well it's this price uh, and they say okay well I'll, I'll take it at uh, this price and then next year I might take twice as much and I say well that's not how it works because next year there'll be exactly the same amount to go around <laughs> yeah. because we only produce a limited amount you know and they don't and they say well you can just produce twice as much can't you and then I'll buy more and you'll make more money and no that's not the idea you know Mm. Uh, and and um, the people that we do work with, um, we've got some very good distributors and, and shops and um, uh, bars and things that we work with, either directly or indirectly. Uh, and, and they do, you know, understand uh, that ethos um, and the way of life here. Uh, and that's really important. Um, you know, we've had discussions with, you know, big retailers and that, and they want to take your entire, you know, yearly output um, at a loss. But they say, but it'd be great marketing for you. And it's like, well, it's not great marketing. I haven't got any beer left to sell, is it? But 
But you yeah. know, this is the beer industry, and and this is, and and we're lucky that we, um, have a premium product that is, um, you know, I could sell what we produce five times over comfortably, um, and I'm not saying that because I think I'm a, I've got amazing sales and marketing skills. I think I think that comes down to the product, and I, but I then also think it's important to market that, uh, in the right way, and to sell it in the right way, um, and we um we don't have these issues you know that obviously a lot of small um craft brewers and um, we talked about obviously we make the one beer style and a lot of these smaller guys have got to make constantly make mm. new things to get them out that's what the sales marketing people want they want small pack and they want change constant new yeah. products and that um luckily we don't have to we don't have to deal with that but it's about when you're working here it's about understanding um that you know you're not working at, Okay, we we here we are here to make money to support the monastery, but we're not here to make millions of pounds. You know that's not the idea. Yeah. Um. So you you have to get used to that. Um. But on the flip side, it has um benefits in terms of um. You know, I'm not beholden to sitting at my desk from nine to five. If there's work to be done, then that you know, I I do it as and when, you know, it needs to be done. Um, and you know, I mean, I could start at six in the morning if I wanted to. Mm. I'm not saying I do, but <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, yeah, there's a there's um a lot of um yeah idiosyncrasies to the job, and I, and I think if I moved on to something else, um, that I would miss that about about it. Um, yeah. So I mean, I often say, I don't, I I don't think because uh, a lot of people often I was raised. Uh, Catholic and I had an uncle who was a monk so I understand um, the life and that's not seen something unusual to me so I think for me you know to come in and to meet priests to, to meet monks you know so my brothers and my fathers and and um, that's not an unusual thing for me whereas I think a lot of people are almost intimidated by it mm. uh, you don't understand that you know, Father Mateus is, is just a normal person <laughs> thank you <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's like you were saying earlier you know it's so countercultural and pe- people know more about the surface of the moon than they do about mm. um, you know monks the monastic yeah. e- even the Christian faith mm. you know mm. I mean something I've experienced since leaving the mega church to start a microbrewery, it's like seven years ago now, is that there is still quite a, a, a lack of understanding about the Christian faith. People think they know what it is, as I alluded to earlier, coming back to some of these American mega churches and, and what they see on the internet, you know, your Donald Trump types and all that sort of stuff. But in reality, for, for most Christians, it's so unbelievably far removed from that, mm. and unfortunately, there are a few bad apples amongst the batch. You know that that um, sour people's experience of the, the church body yeah. and of the Christian faith, which is which is really sad. But so, as far as I remember, we don't when we advertise our job when we give the, the jobs offer. There was no mention that no. someone must be you know Catholic Christian no, or no. no. Not was, that and mentioned. it wasn't taken under uh, account we spoke because we we were looking for for someone who can make this job yes yeah. and that but that was as Peter said it was easier for him we prayed during the bottling day and Peter decided to pray with us and that uh, for me that was yeah I was very happy but if someone he can just go and smoke the cigarette outside yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Um, what what would you say the biggest lessons you've learned about brewing are since setting up Tim Meadow? Um, to be patient and to repeat all this, the same the the same thing all the time again and again and to enjoy it. Mm. Yeah, because that is I really enjoy it uh, because. When you when you repeat the same thing all the time, you can get bored. Yeah, and I'm really happy when I start here, and you know I put my hands into the grains in the mill, and I uh, and I see okay now it's mushing and now it's fermenting. It's it's really something lovely to to enjoy the simplest things, you know, mm. because then whole life is simple. Mm. And you can you can you can enjoy. You don't need any extras, any specials to to enjoy. Monday, wow, great! The heavy sky again. Oh, great! <laughs> <laughs> yes. I have to do the same things, and you, you know, oh, Monday again, again the same. Yeah, and it depends on on you, on your attitude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. how you approach it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think the, the the brewing the same beer all the time, it can learn this, and this is a very useful skill. Yeah, there must be something in that simplicity, and rhythm of life as well that um, is very freeing and releasing. Yeah, yeah. I think this is the, the the one of the biggest differences between the monastic world and the world outside the walls, that uh, we learn because. All the real monks I, I've met in my life, they are really hap happy people. You look on, mm. in his eyes and you can see this, yeah? This is a man, happy man, good man. And they learn to be happy with the simplest things. And outside the walls, people are looking for new things to make them happy, you know? Uh, yeah, as, and if I only had this, yeah. then I'd be happy. Yeah. Mm. And the difference is that the, 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 the happiness and joy which, which comes from things, material things or transistory things, because they are transistory, the, your happiness is transistory. And when you set uh, your joy on you, or you find the source of your joy in something which is someone which is etern who is eternal, then your joy is eternal. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I enjoy material things, and I am happy that we've got such a nice brew house, and it's uh, really you know. <laughs> it's a nice brew house. <laughs> it's very nice. Uh, uh, and 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 enjoyed, but uh, it was broken a few times. Right. Yes. <laughs> and and you know, if if it would be my source of my joy, I would be disappointed. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Oh, we spent so you know so much money and it is broken you know mm -hmm. and I think it is exactly what the people are doing outside in, in the world I bought a new car and it's broken or something and I am unhappy and I need to to get more money to get new car and so on and so on and it's still running 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 and here you are come I, I get three o'clock in the morning and I say my prayer I, I was in the presence of of God, and that was some, you know. I, I celebrate the Eucharist. It was something great. Yeah. Every yes. day the same. 
That's really profound. <laughs> um, I've got one last question. So before I ask it, I just want to say again, massive thanks, Father Mateus, for taking the time out to, to speak to me and, and our listeners on the Hot 4 podcast. I finally, I think I'd love to know, what do you think the biggest thing God has revealed to you through the brewing of beer? Mm. You know that yeast is something alive. Mm-hmm. And I think this is, this is a living process. And you, you are somehow involved in, in creation. So it's, uh, it, from the spiritual point of view, uh, I think this was the, the God's revelation that you can somehow create life. That is, and, and it is amazing. You, know, that you, you put a little yeast to the tongue and it starts. You know, it's it's always when uh, uh, when you finish brewing and is th- this this moment when you when you wait waiting when the fermentation starts and you came at the morning or uh, at the evening and you see the bubbles and yes it starts it's living it's going <laughs> it's 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 really fascinating yeah. yeah? And I learn, uh, from the other hand, I learn a lot of uh, myself, <laughs> especially if something goes wrong. <laughs> so that was very useful, something paid for the revelation. But <laughs> oh, preachy. Um, I, I'd love it if you would see out um, this section of the podcast with that blessing. Okay, yeah. Could, could we do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be in Latin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's in Latin. That's fine. I'm, I'm cool with Latin. Adiutorium nostrum in nomine Domini, qui fecit celum et terram, Dominus vobiscum, et cum spiritu tuo. Oremus. Benedic Domine, creaturam iste cerevisse, quam ex adipe frumenti producere dignatus es, ut sit remedium salutare humano generi et presta per invocationem nominis tui sancti, ut quicunque ex ea biberint, sanitatem corporis et anime tutellam percipient, per Christum Dominum nostrum. Amen. Amen. Which means, bless Lord this beer, uh, which was made from the grains, yeah? that it could be remedy for the salvation of human race, and bestowed on us or give us that through the invocation of your holy name everyone who who will drink this beer uh, will will have a health of his body and the protection for his soul yeah awesome thanks for translating that because i was going to suggest people go on google translate <laughs> yeah, yeah okay <laughs> or learn latin or something yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> brilliant well f- thanks for being on the show um h- how can people get hold of your beer um, so we have a shop on site. That's the main place. Um, that's open Monday to Saturday um, from ten till four thirty, uh, and we try and ensure that's always the cheapest. Um, and you can even uh, meet uh, a monk or two while you're down here. I'm sure. Uh, and then we sell it um, nationwide. Um, we've got a list of different retailers on our website, and we also sell it locally. Um, in the area, local bars, um, bottle shops. Um, so uh, you can also just, I'm sure if you went online and used any reputable search engine, any number of uh, retailers will come up. Um, cause we do sell it uh, UK wide and for listeners throughout the world. Well, it's that time again at the bar for another week of the Hot 4 podcast. 
Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and for another week. Cheers. <laughs>